This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Jim. I'm one of your pastors. And I want to start this morning by taking you back a few years to a camping trip that I went on. A camping trip that I should have never gone on. But you know, you have those friends in your life, those real granola friends, those serious hikers, those people who don't even have M&Ms in their trail mix. And somehow they convince you to go camping. And they told me out in central Texas where we were gonna camp, they said, look, you have to bring a good tent. You have to, it's rain season. And when the rains come down in this area, they pour. So I decided I was gonna go and find the best tent that I could if I'm gonna hang out with these knuckleheads because I don't wanna get caught in the rain. So I went around to my most outdoorsy, North Face wearing, dehydrated food eating, mangled bearded friends and asked if I could borrow the best tent that they have. And you could see like their eyes get big and they're like, we have the one just for you, right? And I was confident. They sold me on the, on the brilliance of this tent. We got out there, we left the car, we started hiking a mile or two. We get out into the place where we're gonna set up camp and you see these giant gray clouds rolling over. And they started to panic and set up camp. I didn't panic because I had this great tent. <laughs> I laid everything out and sitting in front of me was the Taj Mahal of tents. Aerospace grade waterproof fabric, built in solar powered LED lights, an endless supply of little zippered compartments for anything you need. I'm looking at it, and I realize that this tent has everything I need to keep me dry except for one thing. It was missing the poles. <laughs> My friends had forgot to pack the poles when they gave me this tent. And so it started to rain. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. And the raindrops are like the size of a baseball. And I've got to get, I've got to get dry quick. So I look down at this limp body bag of a tent. <laughs> this inside out waterbed. And I climbed inside of it and proceeded to have the worst night of sleep in my life as I became the bottom of a puddle out in the middle of this field. The tent had everything I needed except for the most essential things, and the tent collapsed. Today, we're going to kick off the year. We're going to do a standalone ser uh, sermon where we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a disciple who lives all of life, all for Jesus, and not leave behind the essential things? It is easy in our faith 
especially this time of year, to dream big dreams about how you wanna have an impact in the world, but to leave behind the truly essential things that we need when following Jesus. This is especially true, I think, for Redemption Tempe. We talk a lot about living all of life all for Jesus, scattering into the various parts of the world, whether it's your work, or your family, or ASU, or your neighborhood, and living for the glory of God and the good of others, for seeking the shalom of what's broken in the world. We talk about going out into the world and setting your tent up in the different places of brokenness in the world so that you can be an instrument of shalom, of flourishing, of peace, of, of, of the gospel. And it is easy for us to launch out with big dreams, big aspirations, and to leave behind the central things. And if we do, the whole thing will collapse. Let's pray. God, we pray for today that there would be a sense of comfort where there's comfort that's needed and conviction where conviction is needed. We hope, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves, the world you put us in, the communities that we're a part of, the way that you see them. And that 2024 is a year that, where we don't know what's gonna happen, but we wanna be people who don't leave the essential things that you've given us behind. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What is essential to live all of life all for Jesus? Well, the first thing I wanna point us to today is dependence, dependence on God. That all of life is dependent upon Jesus. It's not just that he calls us to things, but he supplies us the strength, the wisdom, the power to do those things, and we cannot do them apart from him. If you really think about the absurdity of our faith and the things that Jesus invites us into, we should feel the weight of how much we need him. He calls us to take up the cross, to carry the burdens of others, to resist sin and Satan and idolatry, to love and forgive enemies to push against idolatrous systems and, 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 and idols and the temptations that come. We don't have the strength to do that. But Jesus does and he wants to give it to us. In the Last Supper, the real one, not the painting where they're all sitting on the same side of the table. <laughs> Jesus gathers his disciples around and he's given the final instructions to them before he's about to move toward the cross. What does he say to them? What does he do? Does he give them a strategy? Does he give them a technique, a method? Does, does he tell them that you, you just have to look into your heart? If you look into your heart, you're a hero and you just, you'll find the strength to carry on. That's Mariah Carey. That's not <laughs> Jesus. Here's what he says to him. He gathers his people around, and he gives this rich agrarian metaphor. 
about a vine, a grapevine, and a vineyard. He says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things, not the easy things, nothing. In rich agrarian language, Jesus is describing the relationship that he has with his people as one that's similar to a vine and branches. That Jesus is like the vine where all of the life, where all of the nutrients, where all of the nourishment comes from and the branches, as long as they stay connected to him, they will bear fruit. But if they're snapped off, they have no life, no power of their own, and they can do nothing, no fruit. This image of the vine would have been familiar to them as it was imagery that that had spoken of God's people throughout generations flourishing in relationship to him. And when Jesus says that, that you are to abide, it's using this word meno that has this idea of remaining dwelling, staying with. It has the idea of constant connection. When we are disciples of Jesus, it's not this one moment decision. That may be how we become believers. But it's about a constant, steady, day in, day out, minute by minute, connection to him where we are drawing life from him for all of life, where he guides us, he empowers us, he reveals his truth to us. There's not a single day on the calendar, a single minute that you will see on your watch where you don't need Jesus and the strength that he supplies. It's not just that all of life is all for Jesus, but it's that all of our life comes from Jesus and we need to stay connected to him. He's telling this to his disciples. He's telling him as they're about to go to some of the most dangerous places and stand before kings and endure tremendous amount of suffering. And he's telling them that wherever you are going, I'm present with you and I have the ability to to supply what you need in that moment. Apart from Jesus though, they can do nothing. This is hard for us to believe. Maybe harder for us to believe in this time and place in the world than any other time in history in any other place. Because no matter what your ideological leaning is in America, we have a deep tradition where we all agree on one thing. The centrality of the individual and the cult of the self. That your life should be all about you, worshiping you, and your strength comes from within, from within you. Your strength, your knowledge, your ability. It's the Rocky story, that if you just buckle down and try really hard, there's something inside of you that has the resources to do the hard thing that you need to do. And this message, This false gospel is pervasive. It shows up in movies, 
podcasts, songs. Katy Perry talking about you need to hear her roar. That's what this is talking about. But when you meet a real lion, you can roar all you want. (laughs) But you can do nothing. (laughs) This cult of the self, it is so baked in in a number of philosophical traditions and, and, and key cultural uh, icons that all kind of collide together. Romantic expressionism, transcendentalism, postmodernism, all of these things. Let me give you a few samples of what it sounds like in action. You've got Emerson and Thoreau hanging out in the forest saying things like this. Ralph Waldo Emerson, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. It's this idea that you just got to put your trust in yourself and look inside of your own heart, and then you have the resources you need. But Jesus says, you can do nothing. The, the poem Invictus, William Ernst Henley's, ends up with this phrase, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The creed of so many of us. It sounds nice, but if you're the captain of your own soul, you are going to sink that ship. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Ayn Rand, listen to this. She's talking about God. She says, and now I see the face of God and raise this God over the earth, this God whom men have sought since men came into being, this God who will grant them joy and peace and pride. This God is one word, I. And without quite saying it as explicitly as her, we constantly hear the message that we are the gods that we center our own lives around and the gods who supply the strength to do the things that we need to do. And it counters the gospel as Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from him. But if you stay connected to the vine and are drawing from his life, you can do more than nothing. He has things for us that are astonishingly good. The ability to proclaim the gospel and be spokespeople of God and the world, to raise little human image bearers called children and play a role in their formation. To resist Satan, to resist sin, to forgive, to love, to speak truth into people's lives. The Spirit of Christ at work in us as we constantly stay connected to him is the thing that keeps us from just fizzling out. And this same Spirit that was present in the Apostle Paul and all the other disciples, these unequipped fishermen, who were sent out in the world to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and stood before kings with courage and proclaimed the gospel and had such a ripple effect that we sit here today believing in the gospel. The spirit that was at work in them is the spirit at work in us. The spirit in the early church that that gave them the courage to care for the sick even if it meant that they were going to get measles and smallpox as they pulled the sick into their home and cared for them. The strength to do that came from this abiding connection to Jesus. 
William Wilberforce and the other people throughout history who've looked at some broken, sinful thing in the world like the slave trade and said, we are going to work to end that evil thing. We're empowered by the, the Spirit of God, bearing fruit because they were connected to the vine. And even in the subtle, often unwritten about things that never make it to the history books of day in, day out, in our homes and in our work and in our neighborhoods, the little, many subtle miracles that happen as we faithfully follow Jesus all come, all that fruit comes from being connected to the vine. To Jesus who gives us life. Why wouldn't we want to draw from that strength? Why would we want to depend on our own strength? I fall into this so often. I have to learn this lesson over and over again. There was one time a few years ago, we learned from some, some friends that there was a massage parlor in our neighborhood that was likely connected to sex trafficking and just some truly horrible things. And got upset about it. And I did what I do often, and I began to strategize and come up with ideas. And I sat down and I started writing a little vision paper. And I was gonna send it out to people so that we could get a little community going, that we could like seek to some way subvert what was going on here. And I I never even made it to the second draft of this thing. Because the next, a couple days later, I was driving around our neighborhood, and I saw that place had been completely shut down, boarded up. And I told my wife about it, and she didn't seem surprised at all. Because she had been fervently praying that entire time that God would shut that place down. And I was convicted because I realized I really, honestly, hadn't prayed a single minute for that situation, but, but had the audacity to think that I could sit there with a Word document and come up with something. <laughs> it's easy to realize in the big things that we need Jesus, but every second of the day, Every day on your calendar, you need to abide in him and draw from the strength that he supplies. We call the church to live all of life, all for Jesus. I want to encourage you to press into that vision. The things that you are dreaming about in the city of having an impact in, do it. Go pitch your tent, but don't leave behind not just the poles, but the vine where you draw your life from Jesus. It is essential. But not only is it essential to draw from his strength, it is essential to draw from his strength in community. And the second essential thing that we see is that all of life is formed in community. That we need one another. If we're going to faithfully follow Jesus in every area of life, we need one another. You need other followers speaking into your life, caring for you, helping you grow. The early church would use the metaphor of a body to describe the interdependence that exists 
within the body of Christ. One of the places is in Romans 12, where the Apostle Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. One body, multiple different body parts. A diversity of gifting within the body. He's saying that we are all like different organs within the body of Christ that carry something essential that everyone else needs. And you need them. It's not an elective. It's a matter of life and death. Some of us in the body of Christ are like the eyes where we see the presence of God when he seems distant and when things are rough. We need you and your eyes to see the hope of the gospel. Some of you are like hands in the body of Christ who mend what is broken and carry heavy burdens and engage suffering. Suffering that we're all gonna go through and we need you, the hands in the body of Christ. Some of us are like the brains You know a lot of factoids, and sometimes you get a little annoying, but (laughs) when things get confusing, we go to you to help us understand the complexities and the beauties of Scripture. We need you, the brains and the body of Christ. Brains and hands and eyes. If you're looking at the human body and really paying attention, you'll acknowledge that God creating brains and hands and eyes is a brilliant masterpiece. In the same way we should be looking at each other and saying, God creating that person is a beautiful masterpiece and I need to be connected to them. But what would happen if you stepped into a room, as as wonderful as brains and hands and eyes are, if you came into a room and there were a bunch of disconnected brains and hands and eyes scattered throughout the room, you would think something had gone terribly wrong. Was this a war zone? Is this some like haunted Halloween terrible thing that's happening? Just as a room full of scattered body parts would indicate that there is something terribly wrong, a world full of disconnected followers of Christ is an indication that something's gone terribly terribly wrong. When we're disconnected from one another, it's evidence that the the body of Christ is injured and not thriving like it should. It is an amputated faith, an amputated sense of following Jesus. And it's not the way he intended it. If you are disconnected from community, It means that you have amputated yourself from the rest of the church. And it means that you have something, some gift that they need that they don't have and their faith is not thriving like it should because you are withholding it. You have amputated the body of Christ. If you are disconnected from community and amputated people out of your life, I guarantee that there is some area of your life where you are hemorrhaging. 
Here's what it looks like. There are many ways, but one of them is you're not making wise decisions because you don't have the, the perspective and the experiences of other believers and the things that they've encountered in God that they can speak into your life. And so you're lacking wisdom. Another one is believing lies. That there are lies that are undermining all aspects of your life that the enemy just gets free range with because you don't have God's people speaking truth into your life. And oftentimes, a lack of community comes with feeling distant from God. And there are a lot of different reasons why you might feel distant. Sometimes it's just a part of the faith. But sometimes it's that you have put distance between yourself and God's people, and God tends to show up through his people. So that distance that you've created is a distance from God that has come from you amputating the body of Christ. We need each other, like vital organs giving life to one another. He supplies the life, but it comes through us. One of the best examples I've seen of this is uh, a friend that we'll call Layla. She was uh, part of the church uh, years ago, five plus years ago. She was from Iraq, came here as a teacher. Um, just a beautiful example of perseverance and following Christ. But it wasn't always that way. You see, she was a Muslim when she first came. She, she had threats from insurgent groups in Iraq on her and her family. So she was kind of stuck here in the U.S., couldn't go back home. It would cost her her life. And she at ASU connected with someone from this church who invited her into the church, invited her into a redemption community, invited her into the relationships uh, here at the church. And after about two years, this Muslim woman saw the beauty of Jesus and came to faith. And when I asked her who had the biggest impact, she almost laughed at my question. It would be like asking the question, which of your vital organs do you need the most, right? And she described how a whole community came alongside her, how there was one woman who showed the hospitality of God by welcoming her into her home and saying, you're going to be my roommate, my family while you're here. Show someone with the gift of compassion who wept and prayed with her in her lowest moments and showed her the kindness of God. Someone with the gift of evangelism who seemed to be able to explain the gospel in all of its complexity and beauty to this Muslim woman who had big questions. And she came to faith. And then she was dependent on those with gifts of administration and service to help her find a job and get legal status and, and navigate some of the, the challenging things she was going through. She was in an RC. And someone with the gift of teaching was helping her understand scriptures that she was just barely reading for the first time. And as I was having that conversation with her, she shifted the conversation. She, she could see that I was going through a challenging season and her with her gift of encouragement and exhortation was just speaking truthful, life-giving words to me. 
She needed every one of them. I needed her. The body of Christ thriving together, mutually nourishing one another. This is what Paul means when he says that we are members of one another. You cannot grow fully into Christ-likeness without community. You cannot participate in God's mission with real power without community. You cannot set your tent up in the various areas of the city without community coming around you. You cannot resist enemy without community, and you cannot see the beautiful brilliance of this Jesus that we follow fully without other believers pointing you to what they see through their eyes. We need community. It is essential. Now, I know we're at different places with this. Some of us, we don't have a lot of those relationships, and so I would just encourage you. John and Melissa were up here. He was talking about lizards, but really the main thing you need to hear is there's an opportunity to connect in community. You weren't surprised that he owns lizards, right? But you need people more than lizards. So get connected to community and uh, show up for that class. Some of us, we actually have solid people around us, but we're not giving it the attention that we need and, and really going deep with people, checking in on them. I got my haircut last night and I realized that a lot of my most important relationships are like my relationship with my barber, right? That you like see them once a month when it, you really start to need it. You get together for like an hour, catch up, but then nothing in between. And some of you have some amazing people in your life, but there is no room for them in your life between hobbies and extra goals and house projects and a bazillion kids' activities and extracurricular activities if you're an ASU student. There is no space for a depth of relationship that nourishes us. You don't use your kidneys once a month. You need them every day. Same with the different organs in the body of Christ. And so instead of amputating people out of your life, except for those rare moments, I would say do some amputation to your schedule to make room for relationships. It is essential. We need community. And finally, the other essential thing that we need is we need to be motivated by love. That all of life should be motivated by love. A love for God and a love for others, his people. People who don't know him but who are created in his image. Your neighbors. Jesus in multiple ways says that this is the, the core of what life is about. He took the Shema from the Old Testament and amended it, this, this, this creed that they would say over and over again about loving God above everything. And, and saying it's about loving God above everything and loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God with your heart, soul, and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The motive behind everything should be that. I'm talking spreadsheets, 
front lawns, 7 p.m., 7 a.m. What should be driving what we do when we try to live all of life all for Jesus is love. This seems obvious. Seems like it's kind of easy to do. That's only because we have such a weird definition of love in our culture. The English language. Love in the Bible, such a powerful, potent word. The English word love, not so much. Like it can describe everything from your preference to Pepsi to holding an infant child in your arms, right? Brands, NBA, I love this game. Subaru, love, Subaru. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. (laughs) It is not. A Subaru is made out of like an engine and aspirations to hike, not love, right? (laughs) So we think that we were doing a lot of things out of love, but the Apostle Paul invites us to really look at our motives. 1 Corinthians 13, the passage that often shows up, maybe exclusively shows up at weddings. The love is patient, love is kind. We're allowed to read it outside of weddings. And it speaks to doing good things, but with the wrong motives, potentially. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if you have powerful experiences... Like he says, prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and knowledge. And if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He's saying that there is a way to have powerful, emotive, experiences to make huge sacrifices to serve in ministry to to serve at the Rio Vista Center to lead in RC to share the gospel with others but not have love as the motive and if that's the case it's nothing It's hard for us to realize when we miss the mark of love because love in our culture is just this vague, gooey, positive emotion that is all about me and myself and and, and what I feel towards something or someone like a Subaru or Pepsi. But the biblical definition of love is so beautiful and expansive that it's hard to put into small, simple Phrase, but Paul poetically gives the description. He says that love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The common thread 
through all of those characteristics of love is an orientation of, of heart that is outward. Where we, we love God through worship, an outward orientation toward God, an outward orientation towards others as we love them through service that we give of ourselves. True love in scripture is about self-giving, fully displayed in Jesus when he gives himself to us, the living, breathing definition of love self-giving. But there is a battle within each of us between the motive of self-giving love and the motive of the cult of self, self-worship. And it's hard to discern what our motives are. They're often mixed motives. We need to take up Paul's invitation to audit our lives and say, with my gifts and abilities, Am I using them as an instrument of love to honor the God who gave them and to serve others? Or is it to build a totem of success and identity to myself? In relationships, are these transactional relationships with people who can give you something or who agree with everything that you have to say and have a personality that's exactly what you want, using them as a product? Or is it a commitment, mutual self-giving, where you walk with one another, even at cost to yourself. It is January 2024. Many of us, myself included, go crazy this time of year with goals, aspirations, plans, some of you are like, no, I don't do that. But your word for the year is the same thing as that, right? <laughs> we need to audit these things and say, are these driven by the motive of loving God with my whole life and loving others? Because the difference can be quite subtle. We're going to throw me under the bus for a minute. Let me just tell you, some ways that I have messed up with this. Last May, I had some really good motives in trying to get healthier. And signed up for a gym, started working out, started lifting weights again. And I genuinely was doing it to steward the body that God had given me and to, to, to seek to, you know, be able to serve others better to be around for my wife and my daughter in the future and be able to move my body in ways that like serve others. That was my motive. <clears throat> but then something shifted. This last, it was either September or August, I can't entirely pinpoint it. But as I was lifting weights, I was getting closer to this elusive goal that I have had since I was 16 and have never been able to hit. It's the goal of having a combined power lifting total of 1,500 pounds between bench press, squat, and deadlift. I, at least five times in my life, have poured myself into this goal. And every time I get close to this goal, I get injured. <laughs> every single time. This weightlifting, I think it's going to be a part of my life. I think it is a really healthy thing. 
But this goal, for me, is a dumb goal. It is not about loving God and loving the neighbor. It's a dumb goal because something made me think in my 40s I'm less prone to injury. It's a dumb goal because as a pastor, the heaviest thing I need to lift is like a study Bible and none of them weigh 600 pounds. It's a dumb goal because all I'm trying to do is get a pat on the back from others when I do a little humble brag instead of actually honor the God who gave me a body and to love the people that he's put in my life. And I end up cutting corners and uh, pushing harder than I can and end up with an injury like this, end up and be, being functionally less healthy having worked out. This week, I noticed that there were multiple opportunities to love that I couldn't because of my vanity. My wife wanted to move a mattress, couldn't help her do that. My daughter wanted to play some of the fun games that we play, I couldn't do that with her. There, there was an elderly man trying to get through a door and he was struggling, and then I came and with one hand tried to help him through, and I was the worst struggle in this whole situation. <laughs> God brilliantly created the masterpiece of a rotator cuff for his glory, for the sake of worshiping him and loving other people. He created it so that we can use it to help people move, to, to, to do dishes, to carry someone who's hurt, to hold a child, to give bro hugs. He gave a masterpiece of a rotator cuff to me to steward it, and I didn't steward it. And here's the worst part about it. I used our church's mission as a justification for it. I said, well, all of life is all for Jesus, so lifting weights is for Jesus, and I'm cultivating the hidden potential and the muscles and my rotator cuff. But the way I was going about it actually wasn't that. If that was my motive, that would have been good. But I was self-deceiving thinking that this was an act of love when it wasn't. We do that in our lives. Think about the things you're aspiring to in 2024, and can we give them a good look and say, what's the motive underneath it? Let me throw a few out there. I threw myself under the bus. Some of you want to get a bigger house, and you're telling yourself it's because Oh, I want to be really hospitable. That might be true, but give it a second look because it might just be that you want a bigger house so that you can be seen as the person who has the bigger house. Some of you have career goals and you're saying, oh, I want to, to climb the ladder so that I can serve others and do good in the world. And that might be true, but give it a second look because it might be that you want to just have the credentials to where people look at you and say, wow, there's that person. Some of you have that 50-book goal, and it's to, oh, it's to sharpen the mind that God gave me. But if you are honest, it's because you want to be seen as smart and praised by others. Look underneath Pay attention to the areas of our life 
Scripture says that the heart is deceitful. And we need other people to help us look and say, is this shaped and driven by love? Because when it is, it's a beautiful thing. Exercise can be used to serve a neighbor. A, lar- a house can be used as a place of hospitality. You can gain knowledge to, to, to serve others and to worship God in the world. But we need to pay attention. If the Apostle Paul were around in January 2024 and he was writing a letter to America, I think we would read First Americans 13. And it would say, if I can lift 1,500 pounds, but have not love, I am only a clanging dumbbell. (laughs) If I can achieve all my financial goals and climb the vocational ladder, but have not love, I am bankrupt. If I can lead Bible studies and volunteer at the Rio Vista Center and go on a mission trip, but do it for the sake of Instagram, I gain nothing. As we close, I know that some of you might be asking, well, what, what do I do with that? If I see that I have mixed motives, do, does that mean I just stop working? Stop reading my Bible? Stop exercising? Do I become an ambitious emotionless pile of mush? Or do I just conjure up enough love and just try harder to love other people? None of those are the answer. As we close and prepare for communion, I want the last thing I say and the last thing you hear is that the remedy for a lack of love is to behold the love of God. The love of God for you. And as you plunge yourself in and immerse yourself in the love of God, it overflows and crowds out the other motives. There's an order to love. 1 John 4 says that we love because God loved us In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we encounter the embodiment of self-giving love and it pushes away and transforms all the other motives. When we encounter that love, we find that we are known and loved and it melts away the desire to make a name for ourselves. When we encounter the love of Christ and are welcomed by the King of Kings, we find that we don't need to pursue status. When we encounter the love of Christ, we find a resurrected Savior who's defeated sin and death, and so we don't need to be the people who control the world. When we encounter the love of Christ, we get connected to abide in a deeper joy so that we don't have to spend all of life chasing dopamine hits. My friends, as we step into 2024, I don't know what the year holds, but I do know that we are invited by God to live all of life, all for Jesus, to scatter amongst the city and pitch our tent and to seek the shalom, to seek the flourishing of this place. But as we do, let us not forget the essentials, to be desperately dependent on Jesus, to be formed by community and to be motivated by love. Let's pray. God, I just sense that, um, that there are things that you want us to hear, certain parts of our life that you want us to see uh, that the enemy wants to distract from. 
And I pray for each of us that we would see those things that you want us to see in our lives and that we would not let it get out of focus, that we would not forget it, that it would stick with us, that you'd bring it to mind right now with everyone in this room. But not just the areas where we need growth and the areas of a lack of love and a lack of community, but to see the areas of gift where you've given us people, where you've given us your life that we can abide in, where you've given us your love. Help us to see that with an even greater clarity than we see anything else. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, let's take some time now to respond. We respond through communion as the bread representing the body of Christ. The wine representing Jesus' blood reminds us of his self-giving love. Let's respond through prayer. If you have an area of life where you feel like you really need Jesus, we have people on either side of the room who are there to pray for you. We respond through giving as the giving boxes are in the back. Generosity in response to his generosity. And finally, we respond through worship and singing to the one who is worthy of every single syllable that we can put together as we sing to him. So let's stand together and let's respond.